Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to MCU.html. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we are finally in Phase 2. In fact, we're in the first movie of Phase 2 that's actually the third movie of a franchise that had the first two in Phase 1. That opened everything and is the first movie to get a third movie before any other movie gets a second movie. It's a lot of numbers. I'm pretty dizzy, but I think because Avengers made all the money, they get to have all the numbers. All. All of the money. Every money's... Every money's and even two episodes, but we're back to single heroes here, so hopefully we get this one down in one episode. Yeah. So this movie, it was, you know, it made a lot of weird choices, and there was a lot of weird stuff. It felt kind of unusual for not just an Iron Man movie, but a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. There was this effort to be cool that I don't think... John Favreau ever had. I don't think Joss Whedon has ever so much cared who thinks he is cool or uncool. And there was just something about this movie that was so different than everything that came before it in a thematically important way. I definitely agree, and it's one of the reasons I'm so glad we're doing this project, because in doing research on this film, I discovered that many of the elements that we have a problem with, there are reasons for them. And yes, they are very inorganic things that were sort of shoved into this film. So it was really nice, as a fan of the things I do like about this movie, to learn that the things I don't, there's, there's reasons for them. A lot of what we're going to be talking about this phase involves managerial and executive interference on these films. Joss Whedon spoke explicitly about how he was unhappy with the final product on Age of Ultron due to executive interference involving demanding certain scenes be put in or they would cut other things. They demanded subplots be removed and added. But okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Kevo. Tell us about the behind the scenes here on Iron Man 3. Kick us off on phase two. To start, I learned something that I never knew before. I always, I've been wondering why Jon Favreau did not return for Iron Man 3 and round out this franchise knowing he is still involved to this day, you know, with how much of Spider-Man he was in as the Tony Stark stand-in. It turns out that he turned down directing this film to direct Magic Kingdom, which was going to be a Night at the Museum at Disneyland type film. Ronald D. Moore wrote a script for it that the studio rejected. I am devastated that this film has never happened because it is exactly my cup of tea and knowing that that's the reason Jon Favreau didn't come back for this film... Oh, that's upsetting. Because I can't imagine John Favreau would have made the same Iron Man 3. There is so much about this film. It is so uniquely not John Favreau from the second it starts. And I don't know if that's because John Favreau goes to this school of like fun big blockbusters with heart and this is a very small movie forced onto a very large budget. I'm not sure. But there is something that immediately thematically throws me off about this movie. And the more Kevo told me about the director, the writer, everything, the more I understood that this crew was not part of the MCU crew proper, the more this film kind of came into focus for being so out of focus. A world of yes. And most of that comes down to the screenwriters and director. So before getting into all of that, let me talk about two of the other positions I normally research when looking into these films. The cinematographer is a man named John Toll, who is actually pretty noteworthy in his field. He's a frequent collaborator with Cameron Crowe, Edward Zwick, and Francis Ford Coppola as directors. He is one of four back-to-back Oscar-winning cinematographers in history. That's all pretty cool. Plus, like, the projects that he works on with some of these directors are so bizarre. He was the cinematographer for Cameron Crowe on Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky, and Elizabeth Town. I didn't even know Cameron Crowe directed all of those things, so... I had no idea. Yeah, 
Yeah, I didn't know Francis Ford Coppola directed Jack either. Maybe I did. I don't think I remember that, though. Wait, like the Robin Williams movie? Yeah, that was Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Cordshorla. That, Peggy Sue Got Married, and The Rainmaker are all things that John Toll did the cinematography on. Oh, he was also the cinematographer for the pilot of Breaking Bad, which he got an Emmy nomination for, and was the cinematographer for Sense8 with the Wachowski siblings. I feel like this is the movie that is getting closest to the rest of the Cage Club Network's programming. I get that. Oh, the composer is actually somebody that I really love the work of, but Brian Tyler is also the composer on Thor The Dark World and Avengers Age of Ultron with Danny Elfman, so I don't want to talk too much about him in this episode. He is the grand grandson of an Academy Award-winning art director, Walter H. Tyler. He did the score for Sci-Fi's Children of Dune, which was so noteworthy that it frequently gets used in commercials for other stuff, like the Chronicles of Narnia. He was chosen to re-record the Universal Pictures fanfare for its 100th anniversary. He did the music for Formula One and the NFL theme for ESPN. And, oh, what's the other thing I'm forgetting? Oh, right. He's the composer for almost every single Fast and the Furious film. With the exception of the one composed by B.T. Drink. Actually, no, with the exception of three films. BT did the score for the first one. David Arnold, who did the score for Stargate Independence Day and Zoolander, did the second Fast and Furious film. I knew the Stargate thing. Brian Tyler also did not compose the score for Fast and Furious 6, specifically because of this film and Thor the Dark World. So, if you were wondering over there on the Fast and the Furious podcast why Brian Tyler was absent for Fast and Furious 6, this is your answer. When God's call, man. When God's call. Yeah. That actually is not why Brian Tyler was chosen. He was specifically chosen for his work on The Greatest Game Ever Played, Annapolis and Partition, because Kevin Feige was looking for a recognizable theme for Iron Man. The one thing that the Iron Man score has not had so far is a recurring theme for the character. You mean it hasn't had a... Yes. Exactly that. And that's what Brian Tyler was hired for. And if we take note going forward in films when needed, if there is a Iron Man theme playing under Tony Stark appearing in a film, it is Brian Tyler's Iron Man 3 theme. Which, I'm not going to lie, I don't love. I don't really have an emotional connection to it the way that I do to, say, the Avengers theme. Okay, that I think is fair. I love it. So if you're comparing it to your love of the Avengers theme, sure. But I do think it's a really good theme, and I think it's a really good motif for Iron Man. Well, then I guess we know our noise that's going between segments on this one. Kapow! Yikes. All right, but enough about the good stuff. Pierce, Black, go. I guess we'll tackle Pierce first, because one of the things that's the most noteworthy about Pierce is how unnoteworthy Pierce is. His first big thing was creating ITV2's first original sitcom over in the UK called No Heroics. It was a short-lived live-action show about unsuccessful superheroes. Well, I bet that's how he got work over here on this. Actually, no, but more on that in a moment, because I would like to just take one second to talk a little bit more about No Heroics. It was commissioned for a pilot by ABC that was co-written by Jeff Greenstein, who wrote for Desperate Housewives, Friends, and Will and Grace, including the episode Lows in the Mid-80s, which is the show's only writing nomination at the Emmys. All of that, I know, is something Nico would care about, so I enjoy telling him these things, plus the fact that it had several actors that we would know attached to it, including Billy from Battlestar Galactica and Eliza Coop from Happy Endings. So, like, this was like a thing, and ABC just sort of passed on it. I don't like that you're leaving out Freddie Prinze Jr., whose name I see on that list there, sir. Yes, he was also in it, along with Josh Gad and Lindsay from Gilmore Girls, a.k.a. the bitch from season one of Unreal. I super-duper root for Freddie and Sarah forever, and I love that you brought up Unreal because we definitely watched Unreal and loved it a lot. It came up a lot with Joey, who also watched it. Hey, Joey, what's up, buddy? So I guess that was just for him, then. Yes. Now, what all of this did lead to was Marvel hiring him to adapt Runaways into a film back in 2010. That film eventually being shelved because, you know, the Avengers. But this was, like, his first big thing, and really almost his only thing. The only other stuff he did after this was working on Mission Impossible 5 and the movie Hotel Artemis, 
which starred Jodie Foster, Jeff Goldblum, and Dave Bautista, those last three names eventually appearing in MCU films. That's really interesting, but this guy does not have a whole lot of body to his work, does he? No, it, he's more notable for stuff that he was supposed to do. He was going to write the third Sherlock Holmes movie. He was going to write a male counterpart Ghostbusters film starring Channing Tatum and directed by the Russo brothers. He was going to co-write and co-direct a Lego movie spinoff with Jason Segel, but none of those things seem to have happened. That's... I don't even... Wow, this is really fascinating because this guy is evidently more represented by the projects he didn't do than the projects he ultimately did. Kind of, yeah. At least that's what I'm finding is the most noteworthy about his bio. Which now brings us to Shane Black, who is credited as the A-N-D and on the screenwriting and is the director of this film. Shane Black, that's Jack Black's twin brother, right? Oh god, I hope not. I didn't see that on his bio. And Jack Black is just the mirror version of Jack White. And all this takes place in Black Mirror. And all of this is in the White Mirrorverse. Yeah, basically. Shane Black rose to prominence by being the screenwriter for the film Lethal Weapon. He is credited on the story for Lethal Weapon 2, but nothing else in that franchise. He is an uncredited script contributor on Predator from 1987, which explains why he then went on to make The Predator in 2018, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, he also wrote The Last Boy Scout, uh, Last Action Hero. Uh, That's a lot of lasts. Yeah, and the thing that is probably the most noteworthy on his repertoire for this show would be Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was his directorial debut in 2005, and as I mentioned in the Iron Man episode, is the role that Robert Downey Jr. caught the eye of Jon Favreau through. Really interesting, because this guy has the last Boy Scout, last action hero, and long kiss goodnight. He was kind of stuck on ending things. This guy's stuck on a lot of things. I actually, upon doing this research, discovered that Shane Black is very famous for his own tropes. One thing that he does very frequently that, as a writer, I would love to just take a moment to talk about is he's famous for quote-unquote Shane Blackisms, where he makes cheeky jokes in the scene directions of his scripts. And he's been doing this for so long that it goes at least as far back as an article in 1997 that I read describing it as to the ire of many. An example would be in the Lethal Weapon script in a scene description. He describes a set as the kind of house that I'll buy if this movie is a huge hit. This is a really great place to have sex. This is a charming depiction of this man we're starting to get. And what's really interesting is he is apparently famous enough that he has Shane Blackism attached to his name for that sort of thing. And yet that's what I just mentioned Joss Whedon deriding Zach Penn for in his original script for The Avengers. One man's Shane Blackism is another man's Zach Pennism is another man's... Okay, I'm bouncing in my seat because on the subject of Zach Penn, so Zach Penn and his co-writer Adam Leff originally wrote Last Action Hero. And it was a parody of the typical action film screenplays of writers such as Shane Black. And then he was hired to do rewrites for that film. Their original script is actually available online, and there were a ton of radical changes that completely muddled what message they were going for about the feudal cycle of violence normally portrayed in action films. It's, it's such a dramatically different script that the two original screenwriters, it's such a dramatically different script that Zach Penn and Adam Leff are only credited for the story, but not the screenplay, which is specifically unusual for a film based on an original screenplay. That's unbelievable. There's also the case with Robert Downey Jr. in Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis. It's nearly an unrecognizable project compared to what its original intent was. In yeah, the end pro oh, yeah. That film is just nothing like the book at all, and that's a Robert Downey Jr. project. Yeah, that's really true. It's not just his script writing that seems to have these problems. It's the actual tropes he even employs throughout all of his films. He frequently employs buddy cop-type movie with witty dialogue between two characters. He loves labyrinthine crime plots, he frequently employs kidnapping as a uh, story trope, and he also frequently uses Christmas 
as a backdrop, which explain, which oddly enough does not explain why Christmas is in this film. He did not want Christmas to be in this film, but it was Drew Pierce who convinced him to do it for this one, which is just so fucking weird. Especially because Christmas represents no real significant portion of this film. Christmas is just in the movie. It doesn't do much for the movie. I gain nothing from Christmas. Well, their reasoning behind it is they view Christmas as as sort of like a time of reckoning. It's when you take stock of your life. It's when you assess and retrospect on your life. And that's a lot of what this film was for Tony. It was him looking back on his journey and trying to figure out if he could continue being a hero. So I get it as a backdrop, but it's ultimately not like integral to the plot in any way. I ultimately wind up feeling like a lot of this movie isn't really integral to the plot. It winds up feeling so disconnected, like it's pieces of, I don't know, it doesn't have the same pulled together feel of the Avengers. I get that, and one of the other things that I read was that there were a lot of different drafts of this film as well, and I think that also accounts for it. One of the things I was most surprised to learn is that Maya Hansen was originally meant to be the villain of this film. It wasn't going to be Killian who was the mastermind behind everything. And in fact, at the start, there was the possibility that the Mandarin was going to be a lot more like the Mandarin in the comics. It was during their drafting sessions that they came up with the idea of the Mandarin being a fake and being a front for AIM. That is such a defining element of the movie that pulls right out. The Mandarin pulls right out. Now, I'm going to call this something a little funny. I call this Rasputin Syndrome. My husband is brilliant and amazing and funny, and that's why I love doing this stuff with him. Oh, I know where this is going. So, one of the things is I somehow managed to miss the animated film Anastasia as a kid, and as an adult, Kevo asked me to watch it with him, but he asked me to watch it for a specific thing. Look out for how Christopher Lloyd's Rasputin pulls right out. Kevo, I'm going to have you take it from here because it's baffling. Yeah, for those of you who are aware and love the film like I do, it's a very cute little animated movie about something deeply problematic. But, you know, it was 1997. It's all fun. The thing that I noticed as an adult when I watched it was the fact that the quote-unquote main villain of the film, Rasputin, who comes back from the dead to exact revenge on Anastasia, he completely pulls out of the film most of the drama that she faces throughout the film personally is just trying to get to Paris and prove that she is who she says she is. Any of the things that Rasputin tries to do to her, like destroy her train or whatever, ultimately that could have just been something else. In fact, in the course of him coming after her in that scene, their papers were discovered and they were going to have to jump train anyway. It feels like this was an afterthought put in on a script that was not intended to be a children's animated feature. It was probably just a straight-up film, and they inserted this wacky sorcerer. The only time she ever meets him face-to-face is the very end of the movie, and if this wasn't about that sort of thing, it could just lift right out. You know, it's weird. Watching this movie, the thing I felt the most was, it's not that the story is bad, but none of the resolution to any of these mysteries earns your confusion throughout watching it. The Mandarin stuff actually makes total sense even more when you watch this film and you know what's going to happen. As you're watching it and you actually think the Mandarin is this terrorist and potentially some sort of mystic like he was in the comics, it can be such a letdown when you ultimately get to Trevor. Trevor actually feels kind of underutilized, and we're going to talk all about that. He does get his own really cool moment in a Marvel one-shot, All Hail the King. I can't wait to cover that in our Marvel one-shots episode that Kevo has planned, but back to this movie for now. A thing about that, Shane Black actually feels a very negative way about All Hail the King, but if you want to learn about that, you're going to have to tune in for that episode. In the same interview where I read those sentiments, I also discovered something interesting and disturbing. He was very angry about the treatment of this film, specifically because... He was told by Marvel higher-ups to tone down Maya being the villain. And in fact, the lady that Tony fights in the bar halfway through the film 
Brandt is her name. She looks like Pris from Blade Runner. She was supposed to come back in the climactic battle, and Tony was supposed to fight her and not Killian before they were given this edict. Shane Black went out of his way to say it wasn't Kevin Feige. He doesn't even know who it was. It's no one he's ever spoken to. So he wanted to make sure that no one who's directly involved in the making of these films got the blame for that. I'm actually really relieved to hear that it is not the director who directly decided to, in many ways, mute the women in this film. I don't mean to diminish the intensity and the awesomeness of the female fighters throughout these films and some of the coolest action moments ever. Oh my gosh, we're going to talk about some really awesome pepper moments. But in many ways, the women throughout these films, in this film in particular, feel very faceless and nameless outside of Pepper and Maya. Maya is given such a reduced capacity. And Pepper, for all that she is in many ways one of the stars of this film, misses a good hour and 40 minutes of the middle. It's distracting how little Pepper is in a lot of this film. I definitely get that. One of the things I read was that it was a specific choice to have Pepper be the one to dispose of Killian after the way that he abused her earlier in the film. They wanted to give her that moment, so I really hope that was in part to make up for the dramatic reduction of the strong female roles in the film based on that edict, but it might have just been to see her kick a guy in a sports bra all things considered i'm really grateful that it's a sports bra it's something very much that i could imagine a female officer in in the test subject area she's not in a frilly lacy bra after our issues with the daisy dukes last film and the fact that we are saying this movie is although hey two seconds i i feel like other than roadie was there anyone of color of consequence in this film anywhere Uh... And now I'm angry in a different way. Great. I'm at least glad to see he's not the reason this movie has a lot of women are missing and slightly misogynistic undertones. Now that we've spoken a little bit about the background on Iron Man 3, it's not hard to believe that this movie is going to have a rather convoluted plot. After all these rewrites, there's so many parts of this movie that come and go and interlock in weird ways. I would say more than the others, this is the Iron Man that breaks down into segments the tightest. Yeah, I definitely see that. One of the things about this movie is so much of it is about not action and keeping Tony out of the suit that when he's in the suit, they try to make a really big deal of it. And they kind of weaponize Tony putting himself in the suit sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's very much a movie about Tony. It's not It's not about the villain, really. When I went over the notes that I made and I looked at how much screen time Killian actually gets in this film, it's very small. We spend more time focusing on Tony investigating AIM and Killian than we do on screen time of Guy Pierce. That's really interesting because as we were watching it and you started pointing out there's like barely any Killian in this, I really noticed it. There wasn't room for this many villains in the movie. It felt like they took one role and split it over like seven parts. Yeah, each with different varying degrees of importance to the plot, yeah. And part of my problem with the film was the feeling of like disingenuousness the movie gave me, especially the beginning. I found the flashback in a lot of ways... Like a weirdly warm, positive, hollow, it explicitly and exclusively existed to set up a bunch of plot threads in this movie. And sure, it gave us like the one nod to Jensen, but it didn't do anything with it. It was so disappointing. I actually, I was, I was... I was very disappointed by the Yinsen appearance on this viewing, and I, w- I feel bad about that because I was such a huge champion of his. But this cameo, it's such a throwaway. It's only mentioned at the beginning here, and Tony still in present day has not mentioned Yinsen in years. So it doesn't matter that it gave us as the audience feels. It's not acknowledged by Tony. The doctor that he introduces Tony to is the man who will remove the shrapnel from Tony's heart at the end of the film. If that was supposed to be the nod back at Yin Sen, I, I just don't feel it. There was no focus on that moment to even put it there and have it at all. And speaking of things I would have rather not had at all in the flashback, I really would have preferred Tony and Maya never sleep together. Period. Beginning and end of sentence. Period. 
I get that. She does seem a little bit resistant, which makes me uncomfortable about it. It's I don't think anything is against her consent, but she very clearly would rather be talking about their work than anything else. I also felt very much, speaking of women who were mistreated in Iron Man films, I felt very much that we were missing an appearance from, from Christine Everhart. It was really notable that she wasn't there. There weren't a ton of places for reporters, but there certainly were places they could have put her if they were going to go out of their way to bring in Yin Sen. Christine was already a recurring character who constantly was popping up places. If we're bringing this franchise full circle, it was weird not to include her, especially when we will get to the fact that Sam Rockwell is in the short Hail to the King. I also really do not like the way Tony reacts to Aldridge Killian in this flashback. I don't think anything justifies him becoming a megalomaniac, misogynistic supervillain. Serial murderer. Serial murderer supervillain who's trying to maneuver his way into having the president in his pocket for X reasons. I I don't even know. I don't think the treatment justified that. My point is more that it felt unbelievably out of character for Tony, even at that point in his life. We're never given the impression that he is cruel. In fact, from his first appearance, we're shown... He's playful and he's like kind of puckish and dickish. But this is actually specifically cruel to a disabled person. That feels so out of character. I think perhaps Shane Black was thinking, we need a villain in the flashback. It just didn't need to be Tony. (laughs) It just didn't feel like that was necessary, especially because you put all of your villains in the flashback. I didn't need Tony to be the villain of the flashback. Tony did not need to be multiple bad guys' origin stories. I don't even think the fact that it's a competitor tying into Justin Hammer. I mean, yeah, there's some parallels between him and Hammer, but not really. All in all, this is what happens when a very different voice takes over the third part of a trilogy out of nowhere. And not to mention, the Iron Man trilogy is also in part ruled by the events of Avengers. There's nothing that they could have done to overlook the events of Avengers. Tony came falling out of a giant vortex in the sky that had to be reckoned with. And maybe that's even important. By having a completely different voice reckon it, we're having a completely different look at Tony because Tony's, in many ways, a different man in this film. And I guess they were trying to really highlight that by creating a deep contrast with the flashback scenes, really pushing and characterizing the way Tony used to behave in contrast with who he is now, this great humanitarian who nearly sacrificed his life to save the world. And who we, when we come back to in present day, when the flashback ends, we are painted a picture of a man who has become very much a recluse due to his experiences. One of the things we notice at the top of the film is that Tony doesn't interact with humans for a very long time. The opening of the film is him talking to Jarvis and talking to Dummy and talking to his suits like they're people. He's not around people the way he is at the start of every other film. And I guess it's to show the, pardon the phrase, stark difference between him at those two points. And I guess it's not impossible that Tony Stark never would have done that to someone. It just feels like an exceptionally cruel moment. And maybe that's even what they're trying to say. You are ruled by your worst and best moments. I don't know that that really comes together in this narrative. I liked the moment when Extremis exploded and Happy sort of body blocks Tony in his inept happy way and his John Travolta Pulp Fiction look. All that was cute, but overall, I, I didn't really get much. I don't think a lot of the flashback stuff tracked. It just, it established a plot, but I really didn't like anything about the way it did it. I agree. Between this and the awkward voiceover, I was not really engaged at the beginning of the movie this watch. Yeah, I feel that. I I don't think that the next scene being so Tony by himself helps at all. Like I mentioned, the entire scene is just him talking to himself. He injects himself with a computer to help control his suit better and assembles his suit. That's about it. And it makes me really annoyed because I feel like in previous Iron Man movies... All Tony Stark had to do to be cool was be in the scene. And here we have him dancing like your drunk uncle at the first family wedding he's attending since he and your aunt got divorced and she got custody of the kids. He got custody of the drinking problem. It's just really 
weird to watch him dance like that, trying to be cool. It's the first time it seems like there's vaguely a couple of old men in charge of crafting Iron Man as a character narrative. Well, I don't disagree that it comes off as really strange, and whatever their intention for doing it is, I do feel it tracks with the character. Even though he's by himself, he's trying to still be a showman, even though he has become an introvert because of his... PTSD and his experiences. He's trying to act like nothing's wrong. I would believe that the directors weren't going for that and were trying to make him look cool because old white men do things like that a lot. I do still think that it tracks with the narrative. It's just really uncomfortable to watch, like Buffy season six uncomfortable at times. For Robert Downey Jr.'s sake, the less said about that scene, the better. (laughs) Where did we pivot to next? Uh, That's when the Mandarin shows up, and we see his first flashy commercial, and then we cut to pop culture and Rhodey and Tony reacting to it. Ah, yes. The Mandarin. The Mandarin who has come for your safety and security. Did you know that Cadbury cream eggs are sold year-round in the UK? (laughs) It's because your government is lying to you. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Dead by sunrise. That is essentially the narrative they are trying to tell with the Mandarin. It is these weird threats, and it's so much showmanship. Beyond the fact that it's a complete departure from what they have done in the comics, it's a humongous departure from anything they've done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, you're better versed in this, so let me ask you, how much of a big deal is the Mandarin in the comics? Because Shane West is, like, really surprised by how mad people were about this Mandarin twist, and he compared it to, like, he didn't think the Mandarin was someone on the level of the Joker, so he didn't think people would be this upset by it. I mean, he's Iron Man's the Joker. Okay, but what does that mean to Iron Man slash Marvel fans overall, I guess? Just from my perspective as this villain who they've been talking about using since Iron Man 1. I mean, he's Iron Man's other guy. Everybody's got that other guy. Xavier's got Magneto. Sure, he's also got the Shadow King, but, you know, Shadow King's also kind of got Legion, and Shadow King's also kind of got Psylocke, and Shadow King's also kind of got anyone who's ever lived on Muir Island, and... Everybody's kind of got Apocalypse, but, like, Cable's got Apocalypse. And sure, Sabretooth first appeared in an issue of Iron Fist, but, like, Sabretooth is Wolverine's dude. Mandarin is Iron Man's dude. So if you give a shit about Iron Man, you give a shit about Mandarin, he is the Red Skull to Iron Man's Captain America. Okay. Okay. Like, Red Skull level, not, like, Zemo or Crossbones level. Right. I don't know that I would say anybody ranks above that. Interesting. I can see where people were upset. I was someone who didn't have the experience of the comics going into this film to understand the Mandarin well enough, so I just thought it was, like, funny, and I feel bad that I'm someone that they did connect with with that concept when other people did not enjoy it. There's really nothing to feel bad about. It's important to remember that this is an adaptation. If we're starting to split hairs, there's many worse, quote-unquote, offenses to take to heart in the MCU and its transition from the Marvel Comics. I really wouldn't worry so much about it. I think it's a weird interpretation of the character, and sure, many fans felt let down by it, but Iron Man had three successful films— And they never even touched on what the actual Mandarin character is. And that's pretty impressive. They were able to pull off a trilogy for a character that is completely devoid of the main villain that character is known for. That's true, I guess. It would sort of be like helming a Doctor Who trilogy without having to include the Daleks or something. Absolutely. So we make it through the commercial, and we get pop culture cameos from Bill Maher and the late Joan Rivers, and then we cut to Tony and Rhodey at a bar interacting. Tony has been on screen for five minutes, and this is the first time that we are seeing him interact with another living human being and in public. And how does he respond to it, Kevo? Oh, he has an anxiety attack in front of children. Oh, yeah, and so what does he do as soon as he starts having an anxiety attack? Armoring up. 
Oh, well, no, he goes in to check his vitals, to be fair. But, you know, he probably shouldn't fly in that condition. That's none of my business. I don't know how to fly the suit. I would imagine you don't want to fly the suit under extreme duress and anxiety. Probably not, but Jarvis does save his life later, so Jarvis was probably doing, like, a little bit of steering for him. I will admit, they do make really good use of Jarvis in a really emotional way throughout the film. Which is excellent seating for what's going to eventually become of Jarvis. So, after Tony has his anxiety attack, we finally get to see Happy and Pepper! Happy and Pepper! Something I really appreciated about their opening scene in the Stark Industries atrium is that there's a menorah set up, as well as the Christmas trees. Nice touch there, Stark Industries. Just in case Ben Grimm stops by. Just in case Ben Grimm stops by. Maybe. The ever-loving thing, or you know, any other Jewish person who is equally deserving of our respect. Yes. I think one of the things I enjoy is that this movie kind of focuses on Pepper being a CEO. It's definitely a huge element of her opening scene. It's the reason that she... Well, no, Killian comes to her because he's a creeper. I actually hadn't noticed until this watch the fact that Pepper whispers to Happy that, that Killian used to ask her out all the time, so I didn't get how firmly they were trying to establish him as a creeper. And I think it's important to note that they don't go out of their way to make him sympathetic. He's real gross. Yeah, pretty much from the get. I don't think anyone is supposed to in any way be like, ooh, Pepper might go for this guy. At least I hope no one feels that way. Basically, Killian just shows up to be creepy and to vaguely explain what Extremis is going to be and then creep off into the sunset with very little characterization. We then get to Pepper coming home to Tony and the decoy suit scene, which I think is really cute because I feel like Pepper knows very quickly on that it is actually not Tony in the suit. That's very Pepper of her. And she doesn't seem annoyed by it. It's at least not a grave annoyance. Yeah, I... There aren't really any points in this film where I feel their relationship is in danger. I feel like they know each other better than that by now, which makes Civil War all the stranger, but I we'll get to that when we come to that. I think it's funny, though, that she asks if that suit is Mark number 15, and it turns out it's Mark number 42. The Iron Man suit at the end of the Avengers was Mark 7, so in a year he has gone through 35 marks of his suit. And I do want to make one point of what you were saying about Pepper. There is no point in this film where Pepper is not hyper-reasonable. Ever. Oh, I completely agree. Completely. The only time that anybody projects that the two women that are pitted against each other by plot Maya and Pepper, the only time anybody ever thinks they may get catty is when it's a man. It's Tony. Yeah, uh, Pepper, not that you got ahead of ourselves, is actually, like, really pleasant to Maya, especially considering Tony in this scene is about to throw in a jab about Killian, and she reasonably gets super pissed, and I was very happy to see Tony immediately take responsibility and apologize. That is not something he would have done the same way in the first film. It shows a lot of growth. A lot of people I have seen describe the Tony and Pepper relationship as toxic, and as a Pepper Potts, I don't appreciate that. I don't think there's—I think by this point, they've escaped the notion—you're so so cute. (laughs) I think by this point, they've escaped the notion of that sort of toxicity. I think in this film, they're pretty healthy. Weird that this is the film that we say feels the least like a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. But do you know what I would say? There are certain edicts and notions and story demands that are handed down by Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios to help establish later films. And I'm sure they were given the edict of Tony and Pepper need to be okay. And I think by this point, you know, we know how much these characters mean to all of the actors. Gwyneth Paltrow showed up for literally a two-minute cameo in Spider-Man Homecoming. I was floored when I saw that. That's how much these people love working with each other, and I think that's a lot of Gwyneth Paltrow's characterization of Pepper showing through, and her strength as Pepper showing through. Same with Happy. I think for a guy who had to turn down directing this movie, Jon Favreau shows up and does a good job as Happy. I do think the hair is pretty gross in the flashback. (laughs) I can't with it. It's interesting because... Pepper is pretty quickly taken hostage in this film, and Happy is pretty quickly knocked out in this film. And we're going to get to all of that. This movie really does consistently come back to the idea of Tony on his own. And Tony is a team member. 
Tony's constantly trying to create a team. Tony's never done well without a team. His first team was Happy and Pepper. And then he found a team in the Avengers. And now, every time he winds up on his own, he's going to keep forming little teams to survive. It's a really interesting move for Tony, a guy who's supposed to be super genius self-sufficient. So for a movie that's mostly been a guy alone in his house and occasionally interacting with one or two people at a time, things are about to get really intense really quickly. Tony and Peppa are attacked in their sleep by an Iron Man suit that Tony summoned in his sleep. Sure. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like I remember that scene from the commercials, not really knowing what it was going to be. Uh, it's an interesting sequence. It gave a really interesting visual, and I wonder if that was the idea behind the scene. Was it to prove that the suits were out of control? Because that's what it maybe made it seem like. This never comes back up. Tony doesn't accidentally summon suits out of nowhere later. I guess it was sort of a vague, ominous foreshadowing of Ultron, but it doesn't really fully connect. It's more like, oh, I guess you could see that. Yeah, I feel like it's a sequence I could have lived without, but it definitely gave them a visual for the commercials. Then Happy explodes uh, when somebody goes, TOTAL EXTREMIS! in front of the Chinese theater. Which is always so sad when these movies destroy landmarks. Alright, so we're just a little under a quarter of a way through the film, and Happy is in a coma, and we have had one terrorist attack, and now we have a second Mandarin commercial, and then we get Tony going ballistic and giving his address on television so that the Mandarin can come get him. This is the first time we see Tony really unhinge on TV. Even when he came back from his horrible experience overseas in the first Iron Man movie, he's a little bit more put together on TV as Stane sits next to him, looking kittenishly at him. (laughs) So this movie is really a turning point for Tony as a character, which is a really weird time to give somebody a turning point, you know, at the end of their trilogy. We're all always turning, I guess. Next thing you know, they go and blow up Tony's house. I mean, you know, there's a few minutes in between, but it's, yeah, basically the next major thing. I mean, Maya comes back, but I don't know. I guess now it's just learning how many drafts they went through. The character just, she already came across as so flat, and now I even understand why, but she's still just so flat. I really think you could substitute all the bad guys in this movie for one better bad guy. She's uh, sexy lamp syndrome. I don't really think that she brings anything to the story that isn't the, it's that thing. It's the, you you just put a post-it note on a lamp and it accomplishes the same thing. She could be anyone. She really could. And that's part of the problem. So many of the characters in this movie could be anybody. I did love Robert Downey Jr.'s full body flinch when Maya tells him that he has a 13-year-old son. That was pretty great. Yeah, and we actually see a lot of themes of Tony and fatherhood run throughout this movie. I think in a lot of ways, the relationship we're going to see develop between Tony and Harley sets up the relationship between Peter Parker and Tony later on. But here, we have Tony project that the two women are going to immediately be catty because of him, and then the next thing you know, the house blows up. Yeah, what do you make of that whole... I make that we got we got like a half glimpse of Rescue. Rescue is a version of the Iron Man armor that is unique to Pepper Potts. It's from the Matt Fraction run of Invincible Iron Man, a really probably controversial run now, but at the time it was just so great, and I personally love it. I'm a big Matt Fraction fan. And Rescue is a version of the suit that is designed for rescue missions as opposed to battle. Instead of having any kind of real weaponry, Power and resources are devoted to other things to better serve rescue missions. Now, it wasn't quite what we got here, but getting Pepper in the suit and saving Tony was just so magical. Yeah, I definitely loved it. I cheered when it happened in theaters, and I love the sequence of her not really knowing how to work it, having trouble with the repulsor ray, because it's going to be such a great juxtaposition at the end when she's battling Killian and she's the one who delivers the the killing blow it'll be cool to see her get to be even more of a superhero but I think she still does a great job of helping someone here so then Tony winds up escaping this battle along with everybody else but Tony winds up rocketing off to Tennessee because he'd programmed into the suit to go tracing the bits of extremis that Maya was able to talk to him about 
Because Jarvis saved him. He nearly dies in the battle, and then Jarvis is like, I got you, buddy, but then he flies him to Tennessee, and his batteries die. So not as helpful as you would have thought, dude. Well, it's okay, because Tony is rescued by an eight-year-old boy. I think he's supposed to be 12. That's not better. Guys, it's even better, because Tony is rescued by a 12-year-old boy. He's not eight, so he's taken Earth science, and now he can repair the Iron Man suit better than anybody. Hey, that potato gun was sick. It is also the first time we see Tony really interact with a kid. It's an interesting shift, because we go from Tony treating people like their kids to Tony actually dealing with a kid who he in many ways elevates well above his status. Tony talks to kids the same way he talks to adults, which is pretty bad in both directions. Yeah, pretty much. He's maybe a little bit softer. I love the part where he's like, you know, it's going through my head. Where's my sandwich? Like, he doesn't care who you are. Why aren't you helping him? He's Tony Stark. I also need to know what the fuck kind of shopping network that this family has access to that there's a limited edition Dora the Explorer watch. What is a limited edition Dora the Explorer watch? I don't believe that exists. That makes me mad. That's a cocaine scriptism. I don't know what's going on there, but... Running into this kid and finding this specific garage to break into is a little, you know... There's There are too many coincidences. We are going to get into a scene in a moment where he gets information from an exploding soldier's parent, and she just happens to have been waiting to give that information to someone else, and Tony just walked up at the right time. No. No. Specifically, no. But, you know, I, I also just, you know, I just want to come here and have a good time. But... Killian slash the Mandarin slash kind of sometimes Maya slash shh, the vice president are working on making sure you don't have a good time, Kevo. They're taking aim at your good time, and they're saying no! Was that pun intended? Sure was, pal. Noise. Advanced Idea Mechanics. Good for you. Thank you, but this is where the movie does sort of both gain steam and lose steam at the same time. The middle of this movie is somehow both devoid of anything happening, and too overstuffed with things happening. I don't know how they're managing to hit that sweet spot of I'm losing focus and also I can't find anything to focus on, but it's here. Yeah, kind of. There's so much focus on Tennessee and this enormous battle there, but the amount of information that Tony ultimately gleans from that location is not worth his time there. He ends up getting more information from a news van somewhere else in the South when he hacks into AIM's system than he gets at all from being in Tennessee. And it's not that I didn't enjoy the sequence, but like, oh my god, that was such a long detour. And here's the thing. I've been trying to avoid too many comparisons to the Marvel Comics universe because I don't feel that really helps the conversation. The films are their own thing, and that's important to keep in mind and to remember as a distinction. However, Kevo and I, having discussed the Mandarin this episode, makes me feel like I got a little bit more wiggle room to get my toe in there. And here's what I want to say. Kevo has been talking about how this film is four acts, and I really do see it. However, I feel if this was a comic, it would be structured very differently. And there would be a different rate of decompression because in a movie, budget is your concern, but in a comic, dialogue and page count are the premium. That's the budget problem. Because movies have to produce everything you see in some at least believably tangible way. Comics have the magic of being flat. They're paper and they can come out weekly if you want. Movies, it's a little harder to come out weekly, and that's why television shows often have to operate on such a reduced budget, and that's part of why we're not going to cover S.H.I.E.L.D., but that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is, here we feel like they spend a lot of time in Tennessee. I promise you, if this was the comic, they would spend an arc in Tennessee. Oh, I feel you on that. I really do. Absolutely. Uh, It's the same thing that I said about Thor. There would have been a full arc of him incorporating himself into that town so we could really get a feel for how much he cares about humans now once the giant shiny monster man comes. The Destroyer, yes. Yeah, that guy. There would have been an annual where it's all sorts of Thor getting jobs in the local townery. Yeah. And it would have been a lot of fun. Back to this movie, which we seem to be having a little bit more trouble focusing on than usual. I feel like there isn't really a ton of... There is, you know, like we just said, there isn't really a ton to discuss in the second act as we're winding down. There's that battle in the bar, which is fun, but mostly tedious. And 
speaking of tedious, part of the problem is all of these extremist soldiers are all the same. Nothing sets Killian apart, ultimately, other than he's Tony's bad guy. Yeah, I can tell some of them apart. I know his body man because he's really hot. Brant, which is the name of the woman from the bar scene here. She's the one I mentioned earlier. But other than that, other than those two and Zelina from Once Upon a Time later, that's about it. Don't get me wrong. After this, Tennessee is going to come back up, but it kind of feels like once we leave Tennessee, other than a couple of shots and glimpses here and there, we just leave Tennessee behind. Yeah, it was really only needed to establish Tony's man in the van for this film, who is a 12-year-old. Weird choice, but again, you know, I don't mind it. And the name Harley. It's just a name. It's a choice for sure. So that leads us into our third Mandarin commercial, the introduction of the vice president, who I guess is going to turn out to be important, even though he's kind of nothing. I just want to be like, if Mandarin really wanted attention, he should be like, I'm releasing a new iPhone. I got nothing. So Tony calls Rhodey for his password and hacks into AIM's system using a news van provided by Max from Happy Endings, and that's how we get most of the information about Killian from this film, because Killian is going to appear again, and it's been established that he's a villain, but now he's literally going to murder someone in front of Pepper and take her hostage, and I would like to point out that we have not gotten, like, literally ten full minutes of footage from Guy Pierce in this whole film so far, and we're at about an hour and ten. Which makes me wonder how last minute his addition was. I'd been wondering earlier if the weight that we give Killian as a villain is because of who is playing him. If he wasn't being played by such a high-profile actor, I feel like I wouldn't be so disappointed by how little development there is of this character. But it feels like, I thought Guy Pierce was a somebody, so why are you using a big name? You could just as easily use someone smaller with how important this guy is to the plot. I completely agree. Like, he's the central conflict, but like we've said, the movie is mostly just about what's going on inside Tony's head. So, I know we haven't paid too much attention to Rhodey this movie, Rhodey and all of his cute polos. Yeah, he only wears two shirts in this whole movie, and they're both cute little golf shirts. But somehow, it kind of feels like all of the previous characters do get shortchanged in this film. It feels like this is mostly Iron Man and a bunch of new villains for two hours with hints of Iron Man's old team popping up throughout in central key locations to the plot. And they all have good stuff themselves. We see Rhodey resisting Killian trying to get him out of his suit when he's captured. It's really cool, but they're small moments here and there. They aren't really in a lot of or important to a lot of the main narrative of the film. I agree. And speaking of Tony's narrative in this film, here in about the middle of the third act, we are going to get Tony's third and final anxiety incident. We got the one at the top of the film with Rhodey at the bar. We had another one triggered by Harley earlier in the Tennessee stuff. And now we have another one triggered by him here when he tells Tony that the suit isn't charging. I think I just realized for the first time out loud that every single one of Tony's anxiety incidents is triggered by a child. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. Before we came to this film, I was going to potentially have a take on all the suits that Tony makes as him using that as an outlet after not being used to being monogamous. But seeing how healthy his and Pepper's relationship is in this film, I don't feel that way anymore. But there's something to do with, like, fatherhood and protecting the innocent triggering these anxiety incidents in him. So then would you say that there's actually several Iron Man trilogies? Iron Man 1, 2, and Avengers... Then, Iron Man 3, Age of Ultron, and Cap, Civil War, and then Spider-Man, Spider-Man Endgame, and, and uh, Infinity War in the middle there. That's definitely a read worth discussing as we go along, for sure. Well, then let's get to it as fast as possible. What happened next, Kevio? Tell me. <laughs> what happened next was Tony built all that cool stuff, and he went and stormed the Mandarin complex. I really enjoyed this scene. This is where we get the big reveal that the Mandarin isn't what everybody hoped it was going to be, except for possibly Shane Black. (laughs) 
The Mandarin is not just a letdown for the audience, but in many ways, Trevor is a letdown for Iron Man. He felt like he had been coming to a logical conclusion on this mission, and he was going to get all of the answers here and now. And ultimately, all he got was another big fuck you. And ultimately, it just turns out to be another businessman who's out to get him once Killian reveals his full plot. You know, in the first one, it's Stain. In the second one, it's Hammer, who's super weak, but still was the foe. And now we have, like sort of the hot version of Hammer, basically. And that is something that we're going to get to. There's something unbelievably sexual about the way they try to portray Killian at the end of the film. Kevo and I in our notes both simultaneously noticed at one point that he was very clearly beefcakey. It And if the reason he was amped up was or even inserted was to sell toys, it makes a lot of sense that he would be hyper-masculinized at the end of the film. Oh, for sure. But before that, we get a lot of weird sequences with Tony that in some ways kind of harken back to the first film, in the desert. With a box of scraps! And I love that they managed to give us Tony Stark chained up to a bed. Yeah, I guess it's it's at least putting him in as compromising a position as we see Pepper. He's not exactly in a bra, but... And I appreciate that Tony gets the pieces of his suit from Tennessee. It's a nice way to bring that back up. It will come up again in the fourth act for a second. But part of the problem is it does feel very disconnected. Yeah, and I'm glad that this is the last time that we have to see Tennessee for a while, because as we're going into the final act of this film, there's just really no place to keep cutting back and forth like that. The final act of this film really does feel like it would have been a six-issue comic arc by itself, and completely self-contained. It is such an over-the-top explosion fest, and it goes on for so long. I keep thinking this fight sequence has to end, I keep thinking they're out of extremist soldiers, but I keep being extremistly wrong. Uh, Well, here's part of the weird thing for me. So mathematically, if we're going by the fact that basically there is a plot structure at every half hour to denote when a different act break is, this final act is a little stranger because I personally would have thought, you know, the oil tanker scene where we have the climactic final battle is where the final act starts. But that would only have the final act at about like 23 minutes when everything else is normally half an hour the whole air force one sequence is like six minutes long and really cuts into that fourth act time so i'm not exactly sure why i would say i would place it it's a really hard read because as we keep talking about this movie doesn't fit any of the mcu's normal patterns and that's part of what we keep trying to apply to the structure of this film but it is a little bit more all over the place than the average mcu film and it's it's worth noting as well that that was a very strange sequence. It's not at all integral to the plot. And to put something like that so late in the film and have it take so long out of the main narrative, it was a really beautiful sequence. We We both love it a lot, and we love Tony having all these people band together to help each other. But it has nothing to do with the main narrative. And I think part of the problem is it's so slow for how fast it is yeah it's two full minutes which doesn't sound like a lot to you know uh your average joe but in a film when this whole thing is almost two hours exactly from start to stark saying i am iron man two minutes is a lot of screen time to devote to something like this especially because none of these characters are in any other way like kevo said integral to the plot Yeah, it's not even like it's specifically an important general or like he's saving the president or the president's daughter. It's a bunch of unnamed generals and flight attendants. And as much as I agree, really, it's such a powerful moment watching Tony create a team in midair and teaching them how to save themselves. He takes them from victims to their own heroes, and that's incredible. And then the, like, nonstop, really, again, seemingly unrelated ending begins. Yeah, and it starts off with Killian telling Pepper that she is his trophy. It's so skeevy, and he's so skeevy, but I think we're like supposed we're supposed to know that. We're supposed to feel that he's skeevy. And I think that's part of what they're leaning into here. Killian appears so little, there has to be some sort of exchange on that. He appears so little, so there isn't time to give him a sympathetic angle. He's just sort of gross. Unless we're meant to think that that flashback makes him sympathetic for life. That's not enough to make him do all the things that he has done. Because she talks about how she used to work for him before his extremist transformation, and he was a creep then. So nothing justifies sexual harassment. 
It's worth noting here as well, especially as we enter the Hydra arc again. Part of Killian's plan was to get the president in his pocket. I wonder how Hydra would have reacted to that if he'd succeeded. That's the kind of thing I love that gets explored in comics, where you'll sometimes see a, an evil group that's like, oh, no, we had this huge plan, and then this other guy went and did something else on the same day, but like an hour earlier and ruined our plan. I would love to see that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That'd be kind of a more of a one-shot thing or a shield thing, because I don't really have time for that in the movies, unfortunately. But I love that point, because it really is, there are so many evil groups flying back and forth at once. Rhodey and Tony show up, and they sneak around a little bit, and they're caught pretty quickly because these extremist guys are sort of badass. It's a cute sequence between Rhodey and Tony, though, especially knowing this is the last film. We're going to see them team up again in Civil War, and Rhodey is in Infinity War, but this is the last time that we're going to see them really play off of each other like this in an Iron Man film. 100% because so far this is the last Iron Man film and its climactic battle is at least visually amazing. It's like the March of the Iron Soldiers. All of the different marks of the Iron Man suit show up for the battle. House Party Protocol. It's a really entertaining scene visually because it allows us to see Iron Man fight a hundred different places and considering one of the more interesting things about this film was how little he was in the suit and fought fully in the suit. It comes together nicely that here we get that many suits fighting. It's almost like this makes up for all the time that he's not in the suit. I feel like a lot of more jaded adult viewers would have comments about things like, oh, this is to sell toys, and you know, it is, in part. But for me, I'm also still the seven-year-old who's like, oh my god, which Iron Man suit would I pretend that I had? Oh, they're all so cool. Like, it's fun, and it's cool. I know that it's, you know, silly fluff, but it's exciting and fun. What's really interesting here is that Killian is just so unstoppable and it takes so many suits to bring him down. And ultimately, the thing that does it is a combination of Tony trapping him in a suit and Pepper. Yeah, and I know I mentioned it earlier, but now we're here and let's talk about it again. I love that Pepper is the one who delivers the killing blow. Does it make up for her fake death? I don't know. I, I, I definitely see where pretending that Pepper died is really problematic. Killing the lead's girlfriend is always problematic. I think the fact that Happy is attacked at the end of the first act, that Rhodey is kidnapped and left without his suit as well, you know, all of... They, they come for all of Tony's family. It's not just Pepper. And... You know, it's still annoying, but we do then get her being the one who defeats the villain in the end. She gets to save Tony for at least the second time, yeah. and this time it's not by wearing a suit. Yeah, exactly. The movie then cuts to Tony having the arc reactor removed. Yeah, that was an exciting and bold choice. I didn't know that they were going to do that. I think it makes sense, and it tells a conclusive ending to that bit of his narrative, did always kind of make you scratch your head that he left a foreign agent in his body that he needed to power his heart. It just didn't seem possible anymore in a world full of gods that this would be a limitation that Tony Stark could not get around. Yeah, and I think he just came to feel that it was such a part of himself that he just put it off. But I think this film helped him refocus and rethink where he wants to be directing his energy and I think that's really great. And for as much as I love all of the Tony and Pepper stuff, obviously, I wouldn't be me if I didn't point to the somewhat oppressive heteronormativity of this film to the point where Happy wakes up from his coma and is immediately attracted to his nurse. People just don't realize how frequently things like that are everywhere in films, and yet if Happy Hogan was a homosexual and he'd been attracted to a male nurse... Fanboys absolutely would have been annoyed that that was shoved into this film for no reason. I agree. I even think it feels shoved in for no reason as a fanboy. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, so then we close out, basically. We have the the little moment of him throwing his last arc reactor in the ocean and then rescuing Dummy. And then it's credits. And it's not just credits. It's credits that lead into like one of the cuter... I guess, tag scenes, it doesn't have so much impact, but it explains the narration. The whole time, Tony's been talking to his good buddy Bruce, who's been acting as his psychologist. 
It's a really cute scene. It really reframes the narration aspect of the whole film. Uh, a lot of people at the end of the Avengers were like, wait, isn't Bruce Banner a, a criminal? Where is he even going? This This immediately gives us an answer that he is in the quote-unquote custody of Tony Stark and who the hell is going to challenge Tony Stark. And that's really all that matters at this point. Tony Stark is Iron Man. Yup, and then that's a wrap on the Iron Man trilogy. What do I remember about Thor 2 The Dark World? It's my least favorite Thor film, and that it has pod racing. I remember it really awkwardly interacting with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with, I believe, Fish from Ally McBeal, or is it the other one? Cage. I don't remember which one it is, but I do remember that it has Lady Sif. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, I think she appeared on that, as well as like Samuel L. Jackson. They got a few people. Yeah, back in season one, they when the <clears throat> yeah, back in season one when they were trying harder to connect to the MCU. I also remember thinking that this was the first time they were like, no, it's okay to like Loki. No, really, it's okay to like Loki. We're going we're gonna to walk this back, kids. Don't worry. You can like Loki again. I, I remember this film being a lot of fun, but I don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of consequences from Thor The Dark World. Apart from collecting an Infinity Stone, it's really mostly just a self-contained romp. And it's the final appearance of Jane Foster. And the final appearance of Frigga. And I think the final appearance of Lady Sif. And the final appearance of Darcy Lewis. Wow, this is starting to bum me out. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's go out on a happy note. Kevo, how can everybody find you until next episode? Oh, well, you can find me on Insta and Twitter at Kevo Reilly. You can always check out our awesome webcomic, Riot Squad, over at KidRiotComics.com. You can check out my music project, Action Duo, at Facebook.com slash Action Duo. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N dot com. Take a look at the other shows here on the Cage Club Network at CageClub.me, including Now and Again, where I check out now that's what I call music with my buddy Chris, as well as X's for Podcast, where Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our friend Kyle and I examine the X-Men comic franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. And if you're a fan of the material, check out the Patreon and show us some love. And until then, we'll see you around. Bye.